If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Hey, music lovers. The Cannamom Show podcast, in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars, is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at LampkinGuitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. So today we have a guest, uh, Mr. Chris Schroeder, who's the author of Headscape, How Ball Guy Replanted His Hair and Restarted His Life. Uh, Now, welcome, Chris. Thank you for coming on. I'm... uh, very curious because uh, for those of you that only listen and don't watch the uh, the videos, I am follically challenged. I've been follically challenged for years. I never really looked into hair regrowth. I just thought maybe I can keep going lower and lower and lower until I got to the point where there's nothing really to, to hide. But I'm, I'm curious about, well, first of all, Chris, welcome to the show. And thank you for being on. Lynn, uh, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Um, before I dive into the journey, let's start from the very beginning. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Atlanta and um, went to schools there. And um, the book I start uh, with my first haircut uh, when I was like three or four years old because it was a very memorable uh, barbershop experience. I never forgot it. And uh, so I, I start there and then kind of moved to seventh grade in Atlanta, eighth grade in Atlanta where uh, I, I had my best hair day ever in seventh grade for the, the picture of the school officers. You know, I was like looking, hair was coming down and going across and it was full. It was great. I was like, man, I think my hair is my best thing. And then um, eighth grade, starting to get a little widow's peak on those photos. And then through high school, going back all the way till I got married in Atlanta for the first time when I was 22. And one of my um, fraternity uh, buddies, um, buddy, supposedly, uh, in front of the whole wedding party, he came up and grabbed what little left I had at the front of my hair on the front of my um, head. This was right after, this was two weeks after Three Mile Island, the worst nuclear reactor ever in America. So he grabbed my hair in front of everybody and goes, look, Two Mile Island. And it was just all I had, <laughs> this little dollop right here. And uh, But I just watched it going back and going back. And I knew I you know, my mother took me to a dermatologist when I was, a, you know, 12, 13. And he was like, male pattern baldness. You know, this is right out of the genetic textbook. And I was like, oh, is there nothing I can do? He's like, there's nothing you can do. And I was like, no. So I watched my hair recede um, all the way back and then only a little bit in the sides. I used to call it the Julius Caesar look or the reverse mohawk. And uh, I just... 
always thought I was going to be a bald guy. I'd come to terms with it, but I didn't like looking at myself in a mirror. I didn't like looking at myself on a storefront walking by. When I had photos of, you know, my family, everybody had hair except for me. It was like, you know, I was the, I was the, um, the skylight to light well, up. Well, let, let me, let me kind of go back to that because I, I, I want to build the, the story from, uh, so your, your child, are you an only child? You have siblings? No, I was the fifth of five. Okay. Youngest of five. Mm-hmm. And your parents uh, were together, divorced, together. So you have yep. one. So what is your, what is your, does your dad, or did he have, I don't know if he's uh, still with us or not. Uh, no, he's not still with us. He was born in 1917, but he, uh, he had a little strip right here, as did his grandfather. Okay. Um, as my brothers had, my older brothers, they had, my next to oldest brother had pretty good hair up here. My older brother, seven years older, he had a full head of hair. I'm like, great. The older you get in this family, the more hair you get. I can't <laughs> wait to grow old. But my dad had hair, his grandfather, but my dad's dad, who I never met, um, he was he was bald as could be. What and, about on uh, your mom's side? Uh, on my this- mom's side, uh, her dad had a full head of hair. So that that made the old genetic wives' tale of your mom's dad is what your hair you're going to have. That's why I was asking that. It's exactly why. Because I heard the same thing for years because my my grandfather, my mom's dad, was, was bald. He was bald in his early 20s. He had the, the Julius Caesar, what you just uh, described. So I had saw pictures of him, and he was bald. I'm like, yeah, my, my dad has, still has hair. My dad still has hair. I mean, it's thinning and all that stuff, but he's in his uh, uh-huh. late 70s. Uh, yeah, I, I don't. Well, um, the medical community, um, those where I went to get my hair transplanted in Istanbul, Turkey and other places, uh, a couple of decades ago, they started this research that, you know, what is it about the hair follicle that causes certain genetic pools, often Northern European, um, Middle Eastern, um, sometimes also lower South, lower Asian uh, continent, subcontinent, and then also some South American and some Africans. Just, just certain little genetic pools were, were prone to be bald, whereas others nearby were not. And so, uh, but they noticed that the men had the same pattern, pretty much. It's just they'd lose it up here on top, and on the side, they would retain some. And so, um, in the old days, they did all kinds of stuff toupees, they did powdered wigs in the 1700s. You know, they did. Um, uh, strip, they they would pull a strip off the back of your head in the seventies and eighties, and kind of bloody as it was, but they would hide it under the hair. That you know, they take some hair underneath the hair that fell on top of it, and put a strip up from here and put it up there. And then they had hair plugs. You know, they had fake hair. They had toupees. They had everything. About a decade or two ago, they studied um, DNA, and they realized that each hair follicle, particularly in in this area here. They all had the same DNA, but the hair on the side of people's heads had different DNA. And that dictated how the hair follicle would interact. The testosterone in, your, in a male, male body interacts with another chemical that um, is often in the body and uh, inter- interacts with the hair. And so um, they realized that the DNA of people who, who tended to get bald had the DNA that said the genetic prescription that you're going to lose the hair on top of your head because of the way your testosterone interacts with DHT, I think was the chemical. And so that kind of changed everything. And so suddenly they realized we can move the hair from here, the side of your head to the top of your head, and that might not interact with testosterone the same way, and it might take root and grow. And they did it, and it worked. And so then technology also improved. They didn't have to take a whole strip. They just take each individual follicle and move it up there. So technology has changed. Research has changed. Um, genetics, I don't know if they've changed. Yeah, I, I, your genetics really don't change. It's your expression changes. So you can modify. And, and now with CRISPR and all kinds of gene, gene editing, perhaps we can get to the genetic level where we can modify that expression uh, on the genetic level, but l- l- let me let me kind of go back a little bit more and uh, understand how you started your uh, writing and reporting career. When you were in in school, 
did you were you a writer already? Were you into that? Was that a passion yeah. of yours? Um, when I was in junior high and high school, I fancied myself a writer, but I wasn't that disciplined enough to do it that often. Um, I just knew I liked it. And then uh, I kind of jumped on the high school newspaper and uh, started writing for there. And I jumped on the college newspaper and, you know, became editor of both of those and realized I really love newspapers. Do, do you remember newspapers? They, were, they printed on paper and they threw them in your yards back in the day. All, all I remember when I lived in England in 98, they wrapped my fish and chips in newspaper. And then yeah, they so started giving a whole thing of the ink is leaking. We don't do that. So they have fake newspaper now. Right. So uh, in many ways, more than one. So, um, yes, the uh, newspaper industry was what I started in. I I figured if I had to write two or three articles every day, that would give me the discipline to one day write. And so I did that for a long time until newspapers kind of had their, uh, you know, slowdown. And uh, I even started my own neighborhood newspapers and I jumped into PR, did a PR, had a PR firm for a couple of decades and a digital publishing company. And uh, so I was a writer all along. So, and then you got out of the publishing and, and you were still, you still had your, uh, uh, your PR company. Um, I'm, I'm trying to figure out if there is a correlation between stress and hair loss. That, that's really where I'm going to lead the question because you read the different types of studies. So you read that, you know, there's, there's a, a secretion of different hormones, et cetera, that happens and people that have a greater secretion, maybe the, they have greater testosterone that, that interacts with the DHT level, as, as you just mentioned, and that, that one of the causations to the expression of your genetic predisposition. Now, you have a genetic predisposition, but your lifestyle can actually dictate whether it's going to ex- express itself or not. So if you have maybe a more stressful job, maybe that expression will turn on earlier in your life or not. So. I don't know if that's a myth or you heard anything like that. I don't know if they studied that, but we should check it out. Sounds interesting. So at what age did you actually uh, start losing your hair? You were in really eighth, ninth grade. It was kind of starting back. I had a little widow's peak and a little, little, you know, thing up here, a little Island. And, uh, and I was just watching it kind of my photos in college were just a little bit more, 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 more widow's peak. I, I wasn't Eddie Munster, but I was getting, getting there. Um, and then gosh, in my twenties, it just started to really, there was nothing up here. I, I didn't even, I was doing a comb over. Remember those? Um, so I started the comb, started the hair over here and was kind of weaving it through what little hairs I had left and kind of formed a little mat. And that was good until I jumped in a pool or, um, in my case, I went hiking up on the tallest mountain on the East coast, Mount Mitchell, and went down the trails and they had little uh, wonderful trees on either side, but there was a gap at the top. And I walked for a whole day without a hat and, I came back and my head was so sunburned. I was like, what? How did you get sunburned? And I kind of moved it around and moved my comb over. I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah. I, I really am bald. I got I to gotta cut this stuff off. So I, that was the day I gave up my comb over. So from an emotional standpoint, how did that make you feel? Were, were you, was it, I'm sure there was a level of insecurity or did you have, you know, and people make fun, especially when you're, when you're young, but women, was there, uh, was there an issue? Did they mind? Did they care? Um, you know, you hear women talk about, you know, he's tall, dark, handsome. He's got a great job or whatever. But they also say he has great hair. And you never, I didn't ever hear a woman say, he's got the best bald head. You know, I just never heard that. I hear it all the time. Oh, <laughs> well, that's because you do have the best bald head. Thank um, you. But next, I, next to Michael Jordan, I think that's that's the epitome because now it's a symbol of the bald-headed guy, and you can kind of follow along. 1989, Michael Jordan shaved his head, and I was like, "What, brother, could do that and look that good?" You know, and I was like, "I wonder, I wonder," and I was just like, oh, "I'm gonna keep whatever I got." But he changed everything for the bald people, and then you know, it's now it's um, there are a lot of people who shave their heads um, by choice; they they don't have to. So let's go back to the emotional aspect. So as a kid, you have certain feelings that start happening. I I could see my hair falling out, you know, and I was watching it when I brush it and it just wasn't, uh, it wasn't coming back in. I could see the male pattern baldness that he talked about in eighth grade. So I was on the lookout for it. And I just, you know, my, my future was writ atop my forehead and just watched it go. 
So my first wife married me when I had a full, pretty full head of hair. She started dating me when I had a full head of hair. Um, but we got to our mid-30s. You asked about women. Um, and uh, we were kind of going through uh, an unfortunate, just kind of wine, you know, breaking, breaking up kind of thing with our marriage. Um, I know she was getting some, she was making some new friends that she had known in college and um, they all had full heads of hair, long hair going, you know, some down. I was like, whoa, how come all of your new friends have hair and I have no hair? So, uh, but um, we divorced and then I started dating and um, I, you know, I had a, I had a discussion in my head. Um, I am at the, at the time, you know, I'm, I'm divorced. I was in between jobs and I'm bald, you know, so I was like down on myself. Yeah. And, um, but I noticed some women really didn't care. I think they were attracted to me. And I was like, you know, some women were like, yeah, I don't think so. And others were like, oh yeah, definitely. I'm like, so, but I did notice a pattern with those. I would, when I eventually kind of went home to their place over the years, um, and I look at their family photos, I noticed that their dads were as bald <laughs> as I was. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, and, so, and so when I was going out, you know, into bars or dating people or in speed dating or whatever, I kind of almost wanted to say, hey, can I see a picture of your dad? Just, just, cut, <laughs> to the just cut to the chase. Are you trying I, to elude that they may have some daddy issues, maybe? <laughs> well, they, they were always the best. But um, the mom, the you know, you always think people say, let me see a picture of your mom. But I was like, let me see a picture of your dad. Um, so when you went dating uh, after your divorce, what did you cut your hair off? Was that where you completely yeah, all that was, uh, time? I was, I was, when I got divorced is when I pulled off the uh, comb over and I was, I was bald. In fact, uh, my first girlfriend out of, uh, after my first marriage, um, we dated for a couple of years. And one day I was on the phone with uh, a buddy, who somebody I'd never met. We we're going to have a business meeting the next day at a restaurant. He was like, what do you look like? How are we going to meet? And I was like, and my girlfriend was listening. And I was like, oh, I'm, um, you know, six one. Uh, I'm balding. And uh, she just broke out laughing. I was like, what? What did I say? She said, sweetie, you said you're balding. You're not balding. You are bald. And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh. So it was me. It was me realizing that I didn't like the way I was changing. I liked my hair. I missed my hair. And when I looked at photographs, that wasn't the person I expected to be when I grew up and not what I thought I would look like. And I missed the old me. I really did for years. So when you say you're bald, did you shave your head bald or were you? No, I just had the Julius Caesar. You had the Julius Caesar. Um, Did you ever attempt to shave it all off? I never shaved it all off, uh, never cut it really, really short until three years ago when I was getting ready for my surgery and they cut it short. And I was like, whoa, wait, stop. Wait a minute. Right. That looks it like bad. bad. It doesn't look bad. That's what I was saying. I saw some pictures of you. I was like, it didn't really look that bad. I came back after the surgery and uh, came into, and uh, you know, my wife, she flipped on the um, chandelier or whatever light in the, our hallway to see me at the front door and she's like let me look at you and I was like it was all you know fuzz all over my head and she was like you know you look cool I'm like I know I look cool I look like <laughs> Bruce Willis and she's like not that cool <laughs> he's one of my bald heroes too uh, Bruce yeah. Willis I'm very proud of. so why turkey well um I Never worried about how you know all these treatments and drugs and all this minoxidil, all this stuff. I'm like, you know, I, I don't know how to mess with Mother Nature. I don't know, but so I started when I married my second wife um, in my um, mid 40s. Um, I started going to a barber right down the street from her house, and um, he was like, "Dude, your hair around the side of your head is so thick." He goes, "I know a barber. I know a doctor in Istanbul, Turkey." And I take my special clients over there and they move the follicles from here up there. And he goes, I'm telling you, you would look so young. You would look, you know, 20 years younger and you would uh, be so much happier with yourself and you would look amazing. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm getting old for that. I just, but this went on for years. Yeah. And um, so one day I came back in the barber and told my wife, well, Kevin, the barber, he's t- telling me I ought to go to Turkey and move all that hair. You know, here we go. Been saying this for years. And she kind of paused and she said, you know, that might be interesting. I'm like, what? She said, <laughs> I, 
I've never seen you with hair. I just, you know, it might be uh, kind of fun. So that began the serious consideration of going to Istanbul. And so he takes people over there two or three times a year and shows them all the sites and the, you know, all, all the um, great places in Istanbul, which is a great city, puts them up in a hotel, takes them to restaurants and takes them to this doctor who is at this clinic. And um, Istanbul became, he used to say this, and I didn't believe him, but I did research and it's true. Istanbul in the last 20, 30 years has become the center for hair transplant transplantation expertise in the world. And people fly in from all over the world to Istanbul because it's also about one-tenth the cost of it, what it costs in America. But it, uh, the doctors are advanced, the tech support staff is advanced, and people come back from there. And it's just built up into this huge uh, medical tourism business for Istanbul. So describe the procedure. Like you got there, like describe the whole thing so you can kind of visualize it. So they walked in, they they kind of shaved it. I was like, oh, wow, I've never seen that. I mean, maybe I don't. They're like, no, sit back down. You can get this done. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so uh, then they drew a little marker, you know, uh, black marker around my forehead where the hair was going to, the property line where the hair was going to go behind it and where it wasn't going to be in front. And, um, and then you uh, sit down and they do anesthesia. Uh, local uh, anesthesia in your head, that little little needles, little shots that really didn't hurt that much. Um, and they took they they uh, did that around the side of my head and the back of my head in the morning. And then they I leaned back in a chair and I sat there for three hours. And um, the the medical team was at all talking in Turkish, and you know I couldn't have headphones or anything. I was just sitting there listening to them talk, you know, chatter on, probably gossiping or whatever. Um, and uh, it. So at 11.30 or 12, they said, okay, we got 5,000 follicles, we're done. They took a 500 or 1,000 out from under my beard as well because they were starting to run out some of those around the side of my head. And uh, I was like, great, I don't need to shave under here, I'd rather not. So they took some there. And then they said, okay, we're going to take a lunch break. We have lunch in the other room for you. And I got up out of the chair and I looked over on the side and there was a pan. And it looked like little salmon fillets, but it was gauze and liquid uh, and different solutions with all my 5,000 follicles with little hair and little skin and the whole root just sitting in this pan. I was like, is that my hair? And they said, yep, that's your babies. And so I had lunch there and then went back in at uh, one o'clock and then uh, they started planting and they took those 5,000 follicles and after they did anest local anesthesia up top and they started planting them in the pattern that we had discussed. And they did them at a certain angle so I could, you know, comb it this way. Um, and, and then at four or five o'clock, I was done. And I was like, wow. And it was this minor hair all over my head with little, little blood spats, just small little scabs here and there. And um, they said, come back in two days and we're going to take off a little bandage around the side here. Um, they didn't need one on top. And um, we'll wash this side of the head, and then you'll be good to go on back. And so make, they want to make sure there are no infections. So I came back in two days, was there for 45 minutes. And they're like, you're great. Hop on out. And they, unlike America, where they give you all these drugs, uh, prescription drugs to take afterwards, he was like, no, 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 no. We don't believe in any of that. Just take this one drug called Priorin. It's not a drug. It's a, it's a um, vitamin. And I was like, what? And uh, I went and bought it there and looked at it. And it has as its primary ingredient the um, the grain millet, which is like an old world biblical grain. And they said, we studied millet and we found that if you take it, it sends its um, chemicals to the scalp and actually helps um, heal um, uh, follicles that were just in surgery. And they said, that's all you need. I was like, really? And so that was it. And I just went back home and proceeded to watch it and see it grow and prepare to surprise everybody. So from that moment, it, it grew you know, little tiny follicles and it started growing like regular, you know, like it, you hit on does. the side. Was... Most, most people after that kind of surgical trauma, they said the hair does actually fall out, the, the, the shafts. Right. But uh, in about two or three weeks from the trauma, but it grows right back a week or two later and it starts growing from there. Mine never fell out. It was so strange. And um, I think um, it was just so happy to finally get a, you know, a new <laughs> growth area and a, and, a, and a penthouse suite that my hair is like, we're not going anywhere. Um, 
But, you know, it's funny. I had been taking millet for about a, you know, two or three years because it was in one of these grain bars I love, you know, that have all these pumpkin seeds and all these things in it. Well, millet was one of them. So I'd kind of been, I don't know. I, I don't know. I just lucked out. I, mine didn't fall out. But when you leave your doctor and you go to the airport in Istanbul, you see hundreds and hundreds of other men and women yeah. um, leaving to go back home with the same kind of short hair that you have. And they've all been through the same experience. You may not seek the, speak the same language, but you all went through the same journey. So describe sort of what it felt like to have hair again. Well, I loved it. I'm an optimist by nature. And so I thought it was going to make a huge difference in my life and the way I looked at myself and the way other people looked at me. Everybody was going to go, hey, you know, where'd you get all that hair? Well, I came back and about four or five months later, I was going, I was going to go to all these conferences that I usually go to and see all these people I normally do every year. COVID happened, pandemic happened. So we got shut in. So I was left to kind of grow it in quiet for six months or a year longer. I went a full year without getting a haircut. And, uh, cause I just wanted to let it fly cause I hadn't had it in so long. And my wife said I was entering crazy old man territory. He's kind of getting kind of way out here. But, um, I felt so much more confident. I just felt more sure of myself. I felt like when I looked in a mirror for the first time in 30, 40 years, that that was the guy and that was what I was going to look like when I turned into my 50s and 60s. And I thought I would have a head of hair that would be great. And um, when the more and more bald I got and the more I looked at the photos of me, I just worked. I wasn't comfortable with that look. And so I just felt like I had a new lease of life. Yeah, now I, I definitely can relate and understand. I used to have really long hair, and then uh, at some point, very similar to you, I started getting the widow's peak, and I started started moving, and then I started getting a little bald spot on top. So instead of trying to cover and all that, I just cut it all off. And I remember I went to a club, and I was wearing a hat, and these girls were like, "Hey." You see your hair, and I'm like, nah, nah, nah. I took it off, and like, oh, it looks good. So it gave me confidence. So then I tried to grow it back a little bit, and it wasn't growing the same way after I cut it off. So I bleached it blonde and looked ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Ended up, you know, over time, just getting closer and closer. And I think there is there is an effect on mental health with, especially if you're really young. And I talked to a bunch, a lot of really young. Uh, uh, my friends were really young. They went and did, you know, hair transplants, et cetera. And they were all trying different things. Some of them looked better than others. Uh, but there was that, that little bit of swagger. So how do you, how do you sort of equate hair loss impacting like mental health when yourself and maybe other people as well? Is there a correlation? It's certainly a vanity issue. It's, you know, the man in the mirror, the face that I'm looking at. It's, it's when I'm looking out, uh, my eyes see everything the way the world is. And my voice sounded the same. But whenever I would walk past a, a place, I, it was just that wasn't me. So when I, I just, it was just an insecurity, a nagging. I felt like, you know, some people might have lost a finger in an accident or had uh, something missing or, or some big injury or some part. I just felt like it was my injury, my thing. And um, it was it was broke. My hair was broke. And um, so when I walked into the clinic, they had a poster there. It said uh, the fix, fix Hair Clinic. I was like, I sat there and agonized psychologically for decades. And here you all just say, it's broke. Fix it. Fix Hair Clinic. It's like, so they go in, you fix it one day. It's like fixing a flat tire. It's like crazy. And so, but I really, I, I just... Now I love being in photographs. I, I don't hide from them. I don't cut off selfies at the top of my forehead. I, um, I'm in sales, um, and I just feel more confident. Uh, I was actually selling to PR firms, and the owners of PR firms tend to be women in their 30s and 40s. And I just felt like when I walked in, I was, you know, they probably said to themselves when I walked in, old and bald. And so I thought, well, at least they'll say just old when I walk in and they'll, you know, <laughs> I'll have good hair and they'll say, well, you know, um, but it, it helped my confidence. And I felt like a better, I just felt like the person I was meant to be. Yeah. It's strange. Well, the strangest thing was of all the things that happened to me 
is when I finally came out after six months or whatever of COVID, uh, started going to some conferences and seeing friends and people, they would sit there and stare at me and they would just look at me and I would say, what's going on? They're like, you look different. I'm like, yeah. They said, you look a lot younger. You look a lot younger, like 20 years younger than you used to. I'm like, really? They said, did you have a facelift? Did you have, uh, one guy asked me if I had uh, eye cataract surgery or stuff. I'm like, no, no, no. Um, and uh, so people could not, except for the exception of one, two or three or four people, maybe over the course of six to 12 months, not one of them looked at me and said, you have hair, except for two or three or four. Hundreds looked at me and said, you look different. And then I would say, well, I used to be bald. Do you remember? I had a hair transplant. And they're like, oh my gosh, it looks so natural. I never would have figured that out. I was like, don't you remember? That was the most distinguishing feature of me. And they're like, no, that wasn't the most distinguishing feature of you. I'm like, sure it was. And they're like, no, it wasn't. That's really interesting that you brought that up because there is a certain self-perception, right? So if you see yourself in a certain way, you're projecting that onto others, but others may not see you that same way. So it's a, it's really interesting the uh, that story because I people it has to do with confidence and mental health and all that stuff. Like if you own whatever you own and you walk in a room with it, it doesn't matter. People don't notice that yeah. uh, about you. We, we talk to people all the time, and I used to ask people like, "What do you remember? What were the distinguishing characteristics of a person?" And they usually talk about their eyes, their kind, or their smile, or the way they're dressed. People don't really remember that kind of stuff. I think that's that's our own insecurities that we uh, project onto others for sure. Um, what are some of the strategies uh, to use or that you may be familiar with or know if you're follically challenged? Whether well, you know they have whatever. these days, you see on TV uh, keeps and all these different things that you can try. I, I saw some solution come on uh, basketball game the other day. They something you you know I'd never seen before, and they like you know for men and women for their hair. Um, so I I don't know. I, I talked to people who used to do minoxidil, and I think they would always say, you know, it, I think it I think it's helping stop the receding, but they never would say I've got a full head of hair. Um, the people who had hair plugs, like I, I, I think I noticed when Joe Biden got hair plugs, you know, 30 years ago, and uh, it didn't look really good. It looked like there was a little crop, a planting of crops, you know, just a little. And I knew there was a guy down the street from me who had, um, he went back then and got the little plugs. And I don't know if it was even his hair or other hair. I, I never quite knew. Never, But see, we never ask. We never talk. And bald people never talk. The closest bald people ever talk about this to each other. If they're sitting there talking to each other and they're kind of looking at each other, they'll say, I see you go to the same barber. <laughs> That's all they'll say. They'll say, hey, dude, do you like being bald? Or how long you've been bald? Or when did you start losing your hair? They never talk about that. They just suffer in silence. Well, what's the stigma? I don't understand because I, I had the same uh, situation happen with the uh, uh, a young guy that I know in his 20s, and he went and got his, and he wore a hat for weeks, and he got his, he paid a lot of money. It looks great. It looks phenomenal. It looks like uh, you can't even tell, but there was this whole thing of, don't tell anybody. I'm going to hide out for a while. I wonder, what's the stigma associated with So what? If there was a procedure to do something, like if people do Botox, I don't think that's something that people hide anymore. I think women um, were the leaders in uh, cosmetic surgery and men, if they did it, they didn't talk about it. And it was sort of, you were supposed to be, you know, a man and virile and strong and you were just the guy and, you know, you're going to challenge how, you know, it, this is, this is me. And, but, and, and sure, there were a lot of times where I was like, I'm bald and I'm just happy with it. And that's the way I'm, that's the way I am, but not really, honestly, and not most of the time I just kind of had that. And so, you know, I just noticed that all the a lot of the great actors and TV anchors and most of the politicians and CEOs and people who, you know, I just started looking and kind of noticing that for, for a long time, uh, those that had hair in the media industry, uh, with a few exceptions, tended to uh, rise to the top. And those that uh, lost their hair kind of lost the momentum. Hmm. And um, maybe it was just their self-confidence. Maybe it was just, uh, but I think that TV is a visual medium and media is a visual medium. 
and people are visual, uh, men more than women. So uh, women, you know, are in, you know, like to find out what kind of person you are and what kind of personality you have. And if you're caring and if you listen to them, um, we don't listen to me, you know, if we listen to them, but what, <laughs> but guys, guys are visual. And, uh, I just said, you know, I, I've got a, even though I was 62 when I went, I'm like, you know what, what, I'm just going to do it. What the hell? And, uh, because I was in, I, I had sold a company and I was starting another one, and I was like, you know, this is a perfect time to kind of make a change in my life and see what happens. I told my kids, and they were like, "Huh? They they don't remember me when I had <laughs> hair." And they're like, "We can't even fathom you with hair." Why we? Uh, and I, I talked to like four or five of my friends, and two of them were in the health, you know, medical field, and they were like, "No, don't do not do that. Uh, it's just risky." It's uh, untried. It's not going to turn out well. We've got to know who you are. We, this is the you know Chris that we know and love. Don't don't go changing yourself. And I'm like, what do I want to? And when I came back, they were all like, "Damn, we were totally wrong. You look awesome. It's amazing." Uh, you you mentioned celebrities or people on TV. So, and I'm sure that this person doesn't mind because now they're a spokesperson. I ran into Jeremy Piven a few years back. And he was clearly losing his hair. I saw Jeremy Piven a couple months ago, and he clearly has new hair. And I looked at him. I was like, you did something. And now he's sort of, I think it's Hair Club for Men or one of those. I, I don't know which one. But I see him in ads. So he's obviously come out of the, the closet and say he actually had some work done. There's so many celebrities, a shitload of celebrities. You see at one point. But nobody ever talks about that. Uh, are there? Do, can we out some? I, you know, I um, well, a couple of things about celebrities. You know, D- Dwayne the Rock Johnson. He he has a full head of hair, but he says he tweeted years ago. Goes, I hate my hair. It looks like the combination of an afro and the um, hair on the ball sack of a hedgehog or something. <laughs> and um, and then Michael Jordan shaved his hair. Dwayne, you know, the Rock shaves his hair. So a lot of people, all the you know, NBA analysts on TV, you know, that's, they're all shaving hair. So I think a lot balding is is accepted, and people kind of wonder if you shave it or did it grow natural that way, or you you know, but they never ask. And your question might have eluded me here. I'm sorry. Well, I was just saying, are there celebrities that we know of that we can yeah. uh, talk about? Maybe Elon Musk. Work? Uh, had a big head change ahead of hair. Uh, Drew Brees, after he retired as a New Orleans quarterback, and he came back as an analyst for just a few games. But, you know, he was on TV the first night. And everybody was like, my son texted me like, whoa. <laughs> he's, he's got he's hair got now. Hair. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, Joe Biden got it 30 years ago. and he got a, I think he got a better one later. He won't talk about it. Um, most people won't talk about it. And so I started realizing that, even people look at me and they wouldn't say anything. I'm like, come on, come on. I want to have this conversation. I want to tell you the story. And then they were like, so why do you look different? I'm like, because I have a head of hair and I went to Istanbul. They became more focused on Istanbul. Why you to go there? And what was that like? And what? And so I was like, you know what? Rather than tell the story a thousand times, I'm just going to start writing it down. And I was going to do a magazine article. And the more I started writing, the more it just turned into a longer book. And then I added photographs of me through the years. And I realized that, I finally wrote my first book, which was on my bucket list. And now I want to write more. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I, I think it's great for, uh, for people to share in that, in that journey and, and you being able to uh, get that out. You also mentioned, and I don't know if I misread that somewhere about uh, melanoma. Uh, hey. So if you can talk about how that manifests itself. In, in a, you know, it's, it, I was a kid in the 60s and 70s, and we were outside all the time, no sunscreen. We just bake in the sun all day long, um, lay, lay out by the pool, as they said. Um, and so, uh, you know, Northern European descent primarily, uh, this good mix like any, any good uh, any mix would be. Um, I was prone to, you know, getting tan or getting sunburn, one of my brothers even more so. But um, I noticed that when I was um, having to take pictures of myself and send them to the doctor every day after surgery, he, um, I didn't really like taking pictures of myself. But now that my hair was growing, I was like, oh. So I really started enjoying taking photographs of myself with hair and watching it grow in. And I put some of those in the book. But um, 
on like the 25th day or 30th day, you know, he was like, yeah, send me every day, send me pictures every day. And he would text me if I didn't. And so I started looking back through some of them and I actually just noticed that on my shoulder, there was a spot that wasn't there at the beginning of the photographic gallery. And I went back and looked and this was right at the beginning of COVID and, and pandemic. So I, I sent the photograph to my general practitioner. I'm like, Hey, this thing just popped up on my shoulder. What do you think? And he's like, uh, you need to go see a dermatologist right away. I'm like, Oh, okay. So I went to see a dermatologist and they tested it and, uh, they're like, Oh, that's melanoma. You got to go get that, you know, Mohs surgery right away. And so they took care of that. But while I was in the chair with the surgeon, I said, for 20, 25, 30 years, I've been talking to dermatologists about a little spot on the end of my nose. She was sitting there working on my shoulder. She was like, yeah, 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 whatever. And I was like, no, no. I, no dermat Every dermatologist looks at it and says, it's just a freckle. But I, I got it when I was in Scottsdale, Arizona, 30 years ago playing golf. And it's been there ever since. And it changes colors and drives me crazy. Right at the tip of my nose. And she was she kind of stopped and looked at it. And she said, march in there tomorrow and tell the dermatologist to sample that and, and do a, do a biopsy. So, um, I did. And they were kind of annoyed. They're like, yeah, we told you it was a freckle, you know? And I was like, no, no. I... So they, they sent it to the lab and they're like, uh, melanoma. I was like, oh, so the Mohs surgery is a really great technological advance, but it is, um, really kind of, uh, scary the first few weeks they you know they cut out a spot and then they pull all the skin over it and sew it up so my nose looked like railroad tracks and um i uh i, I didn't look good so I, I thought you know yeah mother nature here i am trying to change the way <laughs> i look with my hair and uh god's like you know what we got your number we're gonna mess with you you're gonna you're gonna go changing your look well we're gonna change your look too and so I had, you know, this big surgically repaired nose, just the skin, but it all healed fine. But um, I, I told my friends, I was like Carl Malden and on the waterfront, you know, with fist fights. I just had the big <laughs> nose. And uh, but sure enough, after a few months, it it went back and um, I'm, I have, I've been melanoma free since then. But the literal truth is I didn't like looking at photographs myself. I wouldn't I didn't study spots. I went to the dermatologist once a year. That could have, with COVID and pandemic, I could have had melanoma growing on my body for years and not knowing it had I not had hair surgery. Yeah, that's that I was going to say. You were setting the pictures and there you noticed that, that spot. So it's uh, definitely things happen for a reason. Um, I'm going to bring up a couple of things you may or may not know about these techniques, but I have uh, friends who uh, have some extra cash laying around. So they're like, we're going to try different experimental techniques. So I have these friends who are doing exosome injections in their scalp. Uh, I'm not sure if you ever heard of anything like that for hair regrowth. I didn't see that it's actually working visually uh, when I saw them, but they, they get that done. So it's pretty painful. And also there's something called the WINT pathway. If you ever uh, heard of that, WNT pathways. So there are specific targeted uh, supplementation medication now that actually is supposed to turn back the clock on on uh, on uh, losing your hair and it's some uh, with wind pathway. Um, I think they're part of FDA. They're in the FDA approval process uh, for the supplementation that actually reverse uh, hair loss. So you haven't heard of any of these? I, I haven't. Um, although the the first one sounded familiar, I have read uh, in the last few months about stem cell. Um, stem cells they will put yeah. it inject into your uh, scalp and try to regrow the follicles but um so there are a lot of ways to do it but i think mm -hmm. i would have to you know do apples to apples but i think the least expensive most effective quickest turnaround is to use your own hair and to move it from other parts of your body um and uh, or you know your head in general and uh, it happens very quickly. Within, within a series of months, you have a pretty good side full, to head, full head of hair. And within 12 months, you are rocking. I mean, you, you could be in a rock band. And um, so I, I think there are a lot of ways to go about it that take patience. And people have time. And they're starting earlier. I, I saw a Reddit group. I've watched that for a while. And, you know, guys in there. And, and if you look at the research, and I have some of this in my book, 
um, the highest number of people who are getting their hair transplant surgery are, you know, a good number, 18 to 24, a large number, 24 to 36. Yeah. The, the, the highest number is 36 to 46. Then a good few after that. Nobody after age 60, <laughs> zero. Uh, Except for me. you, one. <laughs> all 1%. my life I've been an outlier. I guess I still am. So. Yeah, you're right about the stem cells. They're just illegal in certain parts of the country. There's only three labs that can produce them. So exosomes are sort of a path towards stem cells. So it's the same kind of thing. I think in speaking in people's circles, and not me because I I'd really I considered it maybe earlier, but now you sort of inspired me. Well, maybe I can you can go to Istanbul with us. in my 60s. <laughs> yeah, why not? But uh, I think if people are are concerned about the invasive nature of the procedure. And there's a fear associated with, oh shit, it's surgery. You mean, you're gonna put needles in my head. You're gonna cut things. Uh, I have to, anesthesia and all these other things. And maybe it's not gonna be as good because I have some people that it looks like they have fuzz on their hair. They have to go back and do it again. So maybe, and I know you described the procedure, but maybe talk about some of those things that I brought up. Everybody would say, you went to Istanbul, you got hair transplant surgery, and the next question out of their mouth is, did it hurt? And the strange thing is, it never hurt. I had anesthesia, and I could feel it, and it felt like a little, I could like punching a melon when you're cutting a pumpkin at Halloween. I could kind of hear that little sound, kind of, they were just going in there and getting out the follicle, these specific little microscopic wedges. But no, it never hurt. And that was... What about the recovery from... From that, was there was there pain during the recovery? Never heard. It's crazy. Got it. That that's I really. Th- good I thought it would, and um, I thought I would have to do all kinds of things to take care of it. And they were like, "No, just you know, let it go. You can you can shampoo after a few days. You can your old shampoo." It's like, "Don't need special shampoo." He's like, "Nah, um, don't need any medicine." Um, and so, um, different doctors will give you a different prognosis and a different prescription. Um, they're different levels of quality of surgery even in istanbul there are some who are taking advantage of the tourists and they put up websites so you can get good and bad hair transplantation surgery anywhere uh just do your research talk to i talk to references people who've been to that particular doctor and um you know that one guy was in 36 and he's like yeah went to a wedding of one of my uh, buddies in college and um six months after procedure and everybody looked at me and their eyes would kind of go up top of my head and back down, but they never said a word. They couldn't figure out what was different. And I was like, oh, that'll never happen to me because I've been bald for 30 years. And uh, and it did happen to me. That's <laughs> so funny. I can't imagine like walking into a place all of a sudden with like hair and people not noticing. I just I That was the most shocking part of it. And that's part of why I wrote the book is because of all the reactions I expected, that one I never did. So tell me how how this affected your relationship with uh, you, your wife. So Jan um, encouraged me after a few years. Yeah, why don't you try it? And she did some research, and she said, "I think you should do it." And so um, I went over with my barber and my brother, who didn't get the surgery; he was just going for fun. Um, and I came back, and uh, she just kind of kept looking at me, and you know, as it grew out, she would look at you know see the pictures, but she would just see me every day. And it kind of was gradual for her, of course. Um, but, you know, I had to, and I did look like a different person. And so I told a joke to my friends. I said, uh, when I first came back, they're like, why'd you do it? I was like, well, uh, I said, it was a big birthday coming up for my wife and I asked her what she wanted for her birthday. And she said, you know, just once, just once, I'd love to let, make love to a man with a full head of hair. And I told my friends that, and one of my buddies was like, give her my number. <laughs> like, Big help you are. Um, so uh, I just, um, it, it didn't hurt. It made a big difference in my look. And my friends were like, it's amazing. I, I was totally against this, but you know what? You, you look great. And so I don't see it, except when I'm on a Zoom call or in a mirror, but I know it's there. And I, it just kind of gives me that sense like when you, uh, I mentioned in the book, like if you work out, I'm not a, I don't work out every day or as often as I should, but when you really get in a routine, you're at the gym three days a week and, you know, after five or six weeks, you're like, I'm feeling good. Well, 
that's kind of the way the hair made me feel. It's like, I'm looking good. I'm feeling good. And this is, this is the old me coming back. And uh, it was a total psychological journey. And uh, maybe it was just a game on my part. But I, you know, it, it made a huge difference in how I feel about myself. And I'm, I don't know, it's just a little thing. And yes, it's vain. Um, but it's simple to do these days. Technology has allowed us to do it. We can do so many things. And uh, it just opens up a whole world of a psychological journey for me of being diff- a different person when I look in the mirror. Yeah, it definitely looks natural for sure. You wouldn't be able to tell like I have in some of my friends who had the plugs and then they decide to shave their head anyway after years. And I have little oh. dots uh, everywhere and the scar in yeah. the back. Yeah, so, the, I knew some people uh, through the years have gotten it over here in America. And uh, they wear caps all the time. And it's like, well, come on, just let it. But they just, they just won't take off the cap. And in awkward times, they don't take it off. You know, you're like, you should take it off now. But no, <laughs> they're not. They always wear it. And uh, so it's, I just feel like a very simple thing. So now I've, the book has been out for, um, you know, since last May. And people have read it and they've called me up and they've said, um, can you give me the name of your barber? I'm like, well, yeah, it's, it's on the website for headscape.me. <laughs> and and the, people have gone over there with him. Um, and I've got a client who um, is younger than me, but he's getting, he's losing a lot of hair and he's got a big wedding coming up and one of his kids in the next six to 12 months. And he's like, I want to do this, but I want to do it with people I know. Would you go with me again? You know, uh, would I go again? I'm like, oh, I could. Yeah. But um, so I, it, he says, I've never had anybody to talk to this about. So would you just talk to me about this for a while? I'm like, sure. So I was actually on another podcast one time and somebody said something that made me realize I thought I was going to write the book and, you know, the book might get some interest. And, and I did I did sell a good number of copies. But somebody said, you know what? I was like, I, I realized this isn't going to be a book that's widely read. And uh, even though it's gotten great reviews and all five stars on Amazon, but the, the host was saying, you know, if you just go out there and help other men and just talk to them about this and broach the subject and um, get them talking, you'll do enormous psychological favors for them and get them to be able to talk about something that they just kind of keep hidden inside. Yeah. And um, and then as a sidelight, you'll sell books. I'm like, wow, you know, I did this totally backwards. I was going to write a book and uh, see what happened. But what I really need to do is just go talk to people and and be a spokesperson and talk about my journey and maybe I'll sell books. But the point is I'll help people, which is kind of what I want to do in the first place. Yeah. No, I think that's great. Okay. I have a, a few questions that I ask all my guests. I'm a big music uh, guy. So uh, do you re- remember the first concert you ever attended? Yes. Uh, I, I um, the actual first concert I paid money for a ticket and went to was Jesus Christ Superstar. But uh, I did wander into a Grateful Dead concert for my very first musical kind of concert experience. It, it was uh, at a at a college campus, and so I, I kind of like to say it's the Grateful Dead. But um, you know, we're we're talking here on a day I just read uh, a great rock and roller uh, left us today, and David Crosby. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I just uh, read that as well. Uh, yeah, it's unfortunate. I was actually reaching out to his people to have him on my oh. podcast because he was just on a friend's podcast about. Uh, he's a he's a big cannabis advocate too, so I wanted to yeah. have him. As am I. Are you? Uh, oh well, let's let's yeah. talk about that. Uh, uh, so you're you're a cannabis uh, user advocate since fourteen. All right. So what was? Uh, please describe your first experience with cannabis. I was a teenager, 14, uh, was out of town with some friends, my high school roommate, and uh, I had it. And I was sort of I was up and down, kind of emotionally. I was a little depressed at that point in my life. I laughed for hours. And they were like, are you okay? I'm like, I am fine. I've never had so much fun in my life. They're like, I'm just, you know. And so it, I never quite had that laugh all night <laughs> experience again. But I realized that my chemical makeup of my body, you know, I, I, I drink beer, I drink whiskey. Uh, I've done, I've done some, tried some other, uh, recreational drugs, marijuana and cannabis, um, reacts to my body and my mind and my chemical makeup in a way that is not like a lot of my friends and certainly not my wives or other people who don't get as same experience I do. 
I have loved it from the very first moment I did it. And I actually have always felt that it made me more creative. Um, my friends and family and say I'm certainly more uh, open and um, I joke more and my wife thinks I'm more affectionate. I relax more. I have the best ideas. I write them down and there really are good ideas. I, um, it, it makes me, I, I'm not ashamed to say, I've said this all my life, if I could achieve that same level of happiness and highness naturally, and I tried transcendental meditation, which is great, other things, I would do that. But cannabis, THC, gets me to a level that sometimes I'll say, this is what other people feel like all the time. <laughs> I, I love that. And by the way, that's why I wrote my book, uh, Making Cannabis Personal, because it's absolutely a personalized experience. I mean, that's the whole point of, uh, you know, our company and the DNA. That's what we do is we test people and try to match them up with what is more aligned with them so they can avoid those adverse experiences. Because there are people that get, you know, I can't consume cannabis. It makes me paranoid. There's, it's the type of cannabis and, and maybe you're right. It's different for different people. I found it's the dosage because yeah. I used to get, um, when I was a teenager, you know, we, we huffed it all night, but I mean, I would get paranoid. And I was like, I don't, I don't really love that paranoid part. Um, but I noticed that if you take uh, not micro doses, but minor, small doses, yeah. and it, the more you smoke, the more you understand what you're looking for and the feeling that you're. So my wife will, I've tried to get her high a few times and she'll say, oh, I feel like Dory in, uh, you know, the uh, Nemo movie, what short term memory. I can't remember anything. And I don't like that. I'm like, no, no, no. That's just, you're on the, just relax. Just come on. But other people say, oh, I, don't, I, I get paranoid. I'm like, it's a dosage thing. You're smoking too much. Smoke a little bit and just let it sit and sit with it and just notice the changes there and just be patient and perceptive. Don't try to just smoke, you know, Bogart the joint. Then it adds more chemicals and more things and you do, you can get paranoid, but I it used to make me paranoid. But now that I've really the last, you know, decades, I've been doing very minor doses and uh, I love it. i I, uh, my, my wife asked me recently, she said, uh, do you get high every day? I'm like, it's just the good days. I'm a daily consumer too. So, I, and I agree with you. And, and by the way, you write about dosage and it's because of the increase in THC that we started breeding into the plants and concentrates because THC is a very narrow therapeutic window. So you don't need much for those receptors to bind and release an andamite. And when you take too much, you basically have floating around in your body and your brain is like, no. And there's different people react differently to that. And so, you know, limiting the amount is, is really uh, the, the key. If I can, uh, I keep wandering into more projects and getting busier and busier the older I get with new fun things, including grandchildren, you know, things. But I, I, when I wrote Headscape, I realized that it fed me as much as I was feeding the page and feeding the re the readers. And I just, I got such a great reaction to it. Um, great review in the newspapers, and everything. I, I realized that that was what I should have been doing all along. And um, so this journey caused me to write my first book and I loved it so much. It was so naturally easy for me. And I just got confidence that I could do that again. So now I want to write five or six, seven books that have been marinating in my head for years. One of which is about weed. All right. Well, I'll, I'll happy to collaborate with you if you want. So uh, Headscape is this one. And um, I'm going to do one on my newspaper industry called Paperscape. And I'm going to do one called Weedscape. Let's do it. I, I'll, I'll be happy to contribute if you, if you would like. Uh, oh, that'd be great. Sure. That'd be great. Um, so I asked you first, what was the last concert you went to? The last concert? Oh, I don't remember. Um, <laughs> it's because you, uh, you spoke too much weed. That's <laughs> I spoke too much weed. Uh, Billy Strings. <laughs> okay. Got it. He's a bluegrass phenomenon. And um, I go to a lot of music festivals, buddies. Uh, we go to Virginia, Florida, all over the place. We love music festivals. But the actual last concert I paid money to go into was Billy Strings. And boy, I can't even get into his concerts anymore. You know, it used to be smaller venues. And now he's like big venues sold out for three, you know, three days straight. Um, new album with the stepdad. He's got a great story. He's in the New York Times. But uh, no, it's... Uh, and of course, music always sounds better when you're high on marijuana. Just a little bit, a little bit of uh, marijuana. So I just, uh, yeah. Um, one day I'm gonna convince my wife to give it a shot again. But uh, edibles is a whole new uh, 
Oh, well, dude. she can do well, our DNA test and then we'll guide her to an experience that's not going to activate that anxiety. Okay, stress. you're on. Okay. You're on. No problem. Yeah. Um, if you could only grab like five albums uh, to listen to uh, that you're going for next 10 years, what will be those five? And I know they change because people ask me this question. I'm like, tomorrow they may be different. But right now, I feel it's these. Um, yeah, boy, I'm always um, worried somebody would ask me that. I would say um, the the first album I fell in love with was uh, Eat a Peach, the Almond Brothers. Um, just both two two sides of live and two sides of studio, just amazing. Um, I got into a lot of Steely Dan after that. I really liked them. Um, I tell you, I um, love James Brown. Um, and I just think he was a master musician and a disciplinarian, and he was he was hard to work for. If you missed one note or just did one thing, he would just come down on his band. Um, so I actually loved James Brown. Um, I love reggae, so there are a number of folks there. But, you know, of course, um, I, I've seen the Rolling Stones a lot, and I do love them. Um, and uh, I, I really loved, I mean, I know this sounds crazy, but, I went through a long David Crosby period. I loved David Crosby and Jenny Mitchell, and they were in love in Laurel Canyon. You know, um, that was the, that was the year to be in Laurel Canyon when uh, Jenny Mitchell was uh, breaking hearts up and down the hillside. Uh, David Cos- Crosby being one of them, um, but just he just had that sort of mystical voice and mystical uh, guitar when he did his solo albums. If I only had a name, um, I just I just think those are so great. I, I know I need a modern one, but. Uh, no, yeah, uh, don't. That's what it, it would be. Um, I, I do listen a lot to uh, if they could take out the applause in between the songs, um, which is kind of loud. Um, the 20th anniversary of the seldom seen, the bluegrass band playing um, at the um, at the uh, God, what was the name of the club in DC, but it was the 20th anniversary, mm-hmm. and um, and then also um, the uh, band. Emmylou Harris is one. I just have always had a thing on Emmylou Harris. I, my wife knows this. I'm just in love with Emmylou Harris. And we met her a couple of times in a concert back, backstage in Portland. And uh, I couldn't get words out. I was so, uh, you know, I've met presidents. I've met, you know, CEOs. I've met sports icons. I couldn't, I couldn't get a word out in front of Emmylou Harris. I just, just tongue tied. Very cool. Uh, so I, I asked this question of my cannabis people, but you're now a cannabis person. So what has cannabis meant in your life? Met? Meant. I, um, my wife thinks this is a cop-out. She thinks this is what alcoholics say, but I think I do everything better on cannabis. And I'm taking a comedy class now. Um, and I'm uh, working on a routine. We got to stand up in a few weeks and deliver a routine. It's kind of, you know, hard to break through and do that. But Part of it's about my hair journey, and I was going to do this routine about, yeah, move my hair and looked good, and then I realized they said you can move hair from all parts of your body, and so I moved it from my underarms, but that was kind of that that hair smelled, and I moved it from my crotch area, but uh, now when a pretty woman walks down the street, I got to wear a cap, so I was going to play that, but the other one was I was I told him I was going to do this thing about marijuana and how you marijuana makes you better at doing so many things yeah. that you don't expect. And he was like, you're going to have to prove that to me. So I'm like, okay, so I got to work on that next few weeks, but it has meant, I mean, it's been, you know, I, I got in trouble in high school a little bit with it. And, uh, but of all my friends, um, they all started used to smoke as much as I do, but, uh, I'm, I have stuck to it and, uh, it has meant the world to me because it makes me more creative. It actually enhances, um, my life. It makes me happier at many times. I love uh, working outside on landscaping and doing things. Um, I love writing. Uh, there's so many things. I love doing marijuana. And I, I'm, I've quit. I'm doing dry January now. I'm not drinking beer. I've quit for months and months of marijuana and not done it. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be a better person. I'm not going to drink or smoke. And I noticed after I drink, don't drink for 30 days or you know, a couple of weeks in, I sleep a lot better. I feel a lot better. I, I, my, you know, I'm sure my liver is happier. But I can tell a difference when I don't drink. I can't really tell a difference of change, healthy uh, comeback in my body in any way if I quit marijuana. 
I just notice I'm not quite as uh, affectionate or happy or, you know, happy-go-lucky or funny. Uh, I, I don't notice anything that I'm a better at. I'm, I don't concentrate better. I don't read better. I don't write better. I, uh, I just am better on marijuana. And it, it's not for everybody. It just happens to be my chemical makeup. It was the drug for me. Yeah, it makes sense. All right, final question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, I had posters, um, a lot of posters from um, bands. I had um, I had some antiques like, in like there. What kind of I, bands? What kind of bands? Um, oh, you know the the best posters seem to be um, you know the ones that Bill Graham was cranking out on uh, Fillmore, Fillmore West yeah. with uh, Jefferson Airplane and Grateful Dead and those. Those things, I tell you, I there's one album that transports me every time when I when I listen to Grace Slick and the um, the Great Society. It's a precursor of the Jefferson Airplane, and she was just out there in San Francisco at Golden Gate Park, just belting out White Rabbit and two or three other songs before the Jefferson Airplane ever. And I just it transports me back in. Back, you know, I wasn't there for the Summer of Love, but it makes me kind of feel like I was. Um, but I had posters of them. I also, um, when I was started applying to colleges, uh, there was this one college. It was really strange. Um, I never applied to them, but they, for some reason, decided to uh, go after a bunch of high school kids to recruit. Birmingham Southern College in Birmingham, Alabama. They started sending out posters to rising sophomores and juniors and uh, seniors. And they were like these really beautifully designed on Carl Jung and all these really interesting topics that I didn't know that much about, but they're, they were beautiful. I would frame those and put them up. Um, tapestries. Um, and, uh, let's see, uh, just a few other, um, political, um, posters and, uh, uh, bumper stickers. Got it. Got it. Cool. Well, uh, I wanted to, first of all, thank you again for, uh, uh, joining the show. Uh, Chris, if you can tell people where they can reach out to you, get the book. I, you know, I don't have a copy. I would hold it up, but you can hold it up and let people see it. There you go. Headscape. Uh, and people are- so you can go to Headscape, H-E-A-D-S-C-A-P-E dot M-E. It's me. All about me, right? Um, that's my website. You can order the book there. You can order, order it on Amazon. Um, I've got a few blogs there about uh, learning how to do books is a whole different discipline. I'm like, you know, I had to learn newspapers and uh, PR and photography and all this stuff, but learning how to market a book is a whole nother lifetime journey. Um, I don't have enough time to do that, but um, I do a lot of newsletters, uh, columns I've written. Um, Old ones are housed at chrisschroeder.com and the new ones are uh, still publishing at the 100 companies. Uh, all of our articles are exactly 100 words. So we're in 24 cities right now. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Len. It's been fun. And uh, if you ever get a hankering to go to Istanbul, let me know. All right, I'll do it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season 1 of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.